Okay. Hello, I'm Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid, and welcome to our first Jewish Educators Book Club. This will be, hopefully, a series of conversations with leading Jewish educators on books that have been recently released that are notable, that are noteworthy, that are remarkable, that we should take note of, that we should uh, be using, that we should be using in our preparation of classes, that we should bring into our classes and expose our, our students to. Uh, books that are dealing with ideas, books that are dealing with problems we face as a community of educators, books that provide solutions to different challenges that, that we're confounded with uh, in, our, in our work. Sometimes we'll be dealing on the academic plane. Sometimes we'll be dealing on the pedagogic plane. Sometimes we'll be dealing on a very practical plane. Today, I'm sitting with Dr. Yael Ziegler, who's a well-known mechanechet here in, in Israel, teaches in a number of the one-year programs, as well as at, uh, at uh, Michlelet Herzog in Alon Shvut. She's also a graduate of the first, the first class of Atid Fellows. And with Rabbi Danielle Wolf, who teaches at Midrash at Lindenbaum, and until his aliyah a year and a half ago, taught at the Fuchs Mizrahi High School in Cleveland. Both of them are teachers of Tanakh. And we are talking about an interesting new volume that was put out by Yeshivat Chovvei Torah and Ben Yehuda Press. It's called Tanakh Companion, the Book of Samuel, edited by, actually by our, our mutual friend, uh, Rabbi Nathaniel Nadi Helfgott. It is a collection of 13 essays by nine authors, some of them really uh, very noteworthy uh, teachers and scholars uh, of Tanakh in the larger modern Orthodox community. Uh, and it, it's an outgrowth of the very interesting Yimei Yun, uh, conferences that Yeshivat Chovei Torah sponsors every June, I believe, in New York, which is uh, parallel to the uh, the very significant Yimei Yun and Tanakh that are held here in Israel in Alon Shvut at Yeshivat Haratzion. Um, and many many people come. I think in New York they get quite a, quite a few hundred people that attend. And it's two days of Shiurim on Tanakh. And this book they collected together a number of the sessions that had been conducted on Sefer Shmuel. Uh, they uh, must have prepared transcripts. And the authors, I think there's nine different authors, uh, some of them wrote multiple essays. Um, and it's 13 essays, like I said, on Sefer Shmuel. Um, and it's called the Tanakh Companion. Master teachers explore key themes, characters, and episodes in 13 insightful essays that bring the book to life. And it's a, an interesting resource. Um, I don't want to give away anybody else's. I don't want to show my cards before my uh, companions around the table uh, do. But like all collections of essays, it's, um, there are always going to be points of unevenness. Uh, some essays are obviously stronger than others. Some parts of essays are obviously stronger than others. But uh, Natty uh, Helfgott, the editor of the volume, who also uh, contributed, I think, two essays two essays uh, uh, himself, he contributed himself, he, he writes a very nice introduction about, about what, what the volume uh, tries to do, and he points to also to our mutual friend and teacher, Rabbi Shalom Karmi, uh, who has 
kind of championed the literary theological method to the study to the study of the Bible. And many of these essays, not all of them, but many of these essays kind of embody this this mode of, of parshanut, which is um, well, I don't know, Yael, how would you how would you describe this genre that the book would, would fit into? Um, well, I mean, he does try here to describe it. He actually has a very, very nice description here in his introduction where he says, uh, this type of study makes consistent use of techniques such as close reading, patterning, intertextuality, and self-reference in the text. I think that's a very uh, accurate description of what many people here try to do. Uh, literary echoes, enveloping, development of character, word plays, parallelism, and chiastic structure although I didn't see any classic structures that I, d- I don't recall, uh, plot development, and a whole host of other literary tools that can be brought to bear on the text of the, of the Tanakh. So this description, I think, is a very nice description of literary techniques that are used both in studying literature and that has been, I would say, you know, recently or, or relatively recently in the study of biblical literature been applied also to Tanakh. Um, and what I understand, what I think that Rabbi Carmi means by literary theological is that we're trying to take these literary tools and use them to try to mine the text for its theological messages. Um, I would actually comment on, on this description, literary theological, that perhaps what I saw more of in the book were the literary readings and a little less of the theological. I think I would have been happier to see more conclusions that, that had to do with the religious message of the text, mm-hmm. which is hard in, in Sefer Shemal because Sefer Shemal you really need to mine the text for its religious messages, seeing that we have a book which is so human and about so many human issues and you know, to, to try to find those theological messages you have to make a concerted effort to do so. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's how I would, that's how I would uh, um, d- define this term. Well, uh, I would uh, agree with that uh, description. I think it's, it's an important one. One of the things that I think is very important about the book in general is a presentation of this method to an English-speaking audience, something that uh, Rabbi Helfgott tried to do with bringing the Yume'iyum to New York. This book does something that uh, to people that are not comfortable reading Hebrew and don't have access to the journal Megadim, it's somewhat the difficult. The journal put out by... The that's probably the biggest forum for this kind of this kind of approach. Um, don't have such such great access to this kind of material, and in that sense, I think the book is is very helpful in giving a one place where you can see different examples of this approach um, played out. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we think about the book in, in general, or you know, if you look at it as a a collection of of uh, a collection of, of essays. How does it hold together? Now, I think one of the one of the review one of the reviews that I saw, uh, while generally while generally very favorable, one of the reviews that I saw um, says that despite I think he made this point um, that uh, despite uh, trying to adhere to the common literary theological method, in fact the authors employ a, a potpourri of approaches which is the reviewer thought a shortcoming. Although I don't know if it necessarily has to be. You can also construct a, you can also construct a, um, an eclectic uh, uh, approach, uh, which might also have value, particularly for, particularly for a teacher, or particularly for a student, 
of, of the text, either an independent student or somebody taking a course, because you can hear different, different voices and, and see different approaches, and some will resonate more with one person and some more with another. So I don't view the, the, the unevenness of approaches as an inherent, personally, as an inherent flaw in the, um, in the, uh, in the, in the book per se. Um, they did, uh, the, the reviewer then does say that, uh, um, that the authors didn't seem to show much interest in academic work or in academic journals. And indeed, the footnotes are, the footnotes are really pretty um, light. It's not heavy on the footnotes, which, you know, which is fine. I, I, don't, I, I don't think that that's a problem. Uh, most of the footnotes are really there just to give you cross-references to, uh, uh, to other places in Tanakh. Uh, or to where the psukim are being cited from, there is one article that really does come with two feet from the world of academia, and that's uh, in, in, not, in, not an uninteresting article. Uh, if you're interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which I admit not, not even every uh, student of Tanakh is interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the, an essay called The Nachash Story and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is written by Lior Gottlieb, who I believe is from Hebrew or from Barilam? From Hebrew. From Hebrew. Yeah. Um, and that, that, um, that essay kind of uh, sticks out a little bit in ter- most, I'd say, in terms of the, the um, you know, adhering to a, to a theme. But besides that, I think it, you know, with certain deviations, the book more or less holds together. Did you... Well, it's somewhat inevitable given that it was based on lectures, and I mean, I, I I presented more than one time at this conference, and they didn't they weren't very specific as to where you should be headed. I assume they just told the the presenters that they're presenting something in Sefer Shmuel, and then they chose topics. So, because it sort of is retrofitted as a book, yeah, it's right. not surprising. But not just that they chose topics, but they each come with their own methodology. And they right. don't have they don't even know who the other presenters are necessarily right. in their topic. So there's no attempt at a kind of right. unity. So they happen to come from similar backgrounds right. and have similar approaches. Right. So I think that's again, we're talking about the book somewhat from a educational perspective. And from that regard as a teacher I would probably want something that has a little bit more unity in it. But that's not really the point of this book. Yeah. I can't really blame them for that. Right. Would it be nice to have a book that is a little bit more consistent? I think it might be, but that's that's not really where we're at in in this in this presentation. Right. One wonders, uh, in terms of Rabbi Helfgott's work as the editor, which pieces on Sefer Shmuel didn't make it into the book and why? Uh, there there might have been that. Well, there probably were over the years topics that I overlapped. I think this was all from one I know that there are others planned in the series. Yeah. I think that's uh, from Malachim is the next. Is it Sefer Malachim or Shoftim? I signed something when I was there saying that they could they could use my uh, lecture as uh, part of a book. But I, I don't... Re- I mean... Uh, so I think that is they hope, I think they hope to put out a number yeah. of... Uh, without giving away the conclusions, I think that's a, a welcome... would be a welcome phenomenon. This is a new Ben Yehuda Press, which is actually based in Teaneck. Uh, which is based in Teaneck and is is um, the project of a man named Larry Udelson. Um, is a new it's a new uh, publishing house and they seem to be doing uh, interesting work so so far. Now let's get into some of the specifics. What are what are some of the essays that uh, that really resonated with you that you thought were particularly notable? 
Uh, well, maybe I'll just make one point about the, the coherence of the book. You were saying that um, that it, to some extent one of the shortcomings of having this kind of form is that um, you know they don't necessarily cohere. On the other hand, I thought there was a tremendous coherence relative to what one might expect, but mainly in terms of methodology. I felt that everybody in general, aside from Lior Gottlieb, and, and maybe also uh, you mentioned before uh, Natty's article on uh, Natty's uh, essay on uh, Amalek, right. and uh, and also perhaps uh, maybe also Chaim Angel's article on Urim Vitumim, Mainly, what even even I would I would actually include Hans' article on Ornvitun. Mainly, what they were engaging with a close reading. Um, I think one of the shortcomings of of the lack of footnotes, however, is that from an educational perspective, as a teacher, I would have liked to have seen more references, and not just to academic um, sources. I mean, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that you're interested, especially if you're gearing this towards mm-hmm. high school teachers, you're more interested in, in, uh, in, in uh, traditional sources. But there was a very, very, very little reference right. to Radak, to Midrash, to Rashi. I mean, this was one thing when I read uh, the introduction here, uh, uh, Rabbi Helfgott says very explicitly, this study not only builds upon the insights of Midrash and cla- classical yeah. exegesis, but strives to engage the text directly as well. Right. So I also thought that. I also thought that there was... Now, it could be that it just didn't make it into the paper. It could be that when you're preparing a... An hour, how long are the shiurim at the Yom Yom? An, an hour, hour, yeah. Right? So an hour uh, total, minus two minutes at the beginning, two minutes at the end, and however many minutes of discussion. There are certain things that you're not going to put in uh, in that 50-minute presentation but if you're preparing it for publication, you might add that in either into the text or into footnotes, which are here, uh, which are which are which are not here. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Every once in a while, I would also see right. a phrase: "It has been noted," or "Many have noted." Right. And, and when you're writing, like it's did very yeah. I, I did I did really uh, feel that from right. an educational perspective, it's a much better tool if you do right. have those sources. Right. Well, so then let me just make uh, another side note. Um, and again, I, I have very favorable opinion of the book, but I'll make another semi-critical point. Again, these were lectures that were delivered at the conference, conference proceedings. Uh, almost all of them seem to have gone undergone uh, beyond, uh, beyond the editor's editing. The authors seem to have revised them. I, I, one gets the impression that they must have made uh, transcripts of the talks, given them to the editors, and said, take Dvarim Shabal Peh, and turn it into Dvaram Shabbat Take your oral presentation and turn it into a written presentation. Some did more, some did less. You, you read some of them and you hear them, you can hear them talking instead of hear them writing, as it were. A few of the essays, um, perhaps some of the most notable in the book, and that might be why they got in despite this fact, the three essays by, uh, by Rabbi David Silber, who you can't put out a book, but you can't, it, it wouldn't be impossible to put out a collection uh, of uh, essays by modern Orthodox teachers and thinkers without including three essays by David Silber. He's been working on this for 30 years and he's written some, I, I remember an essay that he wrote in tradition, it must have been published 25 or 30 years, no, more, at least 30 years ago because I first read it 20 years ago when I got to Yeshiva College and ended up using that as a main piece in a paper that I wrote when I was an undergraduate in Shalom Karmi's class uh, about, uh, about Malchut and, uh, and Shmuel, and from that I got on Thea Barbanel. It was my introduction into, into Thea Barbanel, and then a couple of years later I went and I took that and I expanded it into my master's thesis. Um, not, not in Tanakh, but in Jewish history. So in other words, the, 
things things take different twists and turns um, in intellectual Jewish history, um, the Barbanel in politics. But you know these were important, and he's continued to write, and he's not just rehashing the same stuff again and again and again. It's it's new material, and he keeps going back to it, and it's it's just fascinating to watch somebody engaged with one sefer over so many years. Obviously, he does many other things, and he teaches other things as well. But somehow, sefer Shmuel for him is important. His essays, however, instead of at the top having his name, is based on a lecture by Rabbi David Silber. So obviously his essays didn't enjoy the same level of his revision. I understand why the editor thought it was necessary, and I agree it was necessary to include them anyway, but this you also get you know, the degree of unevenness. There's another essay by Jack Beeler, a, a very nice essay, which we'll talk about later, which also appears to be based on but not his reworking of it to Dvarim Shibachtav. So, again, we were about to talk about, we were about to discuss the, the, uh, the specifics of the book, the essays that... Uh okay, I, I, I wanted to mention specifically the two essays that I thought were somewhat um, not, not in line with the rest of the uh, um, close readings, and that were... Uh, the essays of Nadi Halfgat about Amalek and the essay of Chaim Angel about the Urm Vitumen because both of those essays uh, related to what I would call, from a teacher's perspective, somewhat supplementary issues that would, would come up. The Amalek issue would probably come up in most classes. The Urm Vitumen issue is a little bit easier to uh, slide over, especially in high school. Um, and those are essays that as a teacher would be helpful because they collect source material and give a presentation to a rather uh, uh, complex and uh, troubling issues that come up around the learning of Sefer Shmuel and other texts uh, but aren't necessarily connected to the, uh, the plot line and the basic shot of the story and could be avoided and I would venture for the most part are avoided mm-hmm. in the teaching of Shmuel in middle school and high school um, but as a teacher, it would be nice to have that material background in the background and see when and in what way you could use it. And in that sense, I, uh, I appreciate those kinds of presentations and what they add to the overall, uh, the overall impression of the book. They're also very nicely sourced, as opposed to maybe some of the other right. essays. Those were perhaps the two essays where we had the most, you know, the, uh, Chaim Angel, when he describes uh, but the Rambam Tumim, he shows everyone's opinion as to what it was, and right. you know all the different medieval uh, exegetes, and and also right. uh, well, you would need to because that that's the kind of uh, issue that requires the research, and it's clear that that research came up came out in the essay, and that's exactly what what I would be looking for right. as a teacher. Right. I think that the Amalek question is an important one. I think it rears its head. Amalek, the 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 moral question of you know how does how does God mandate a, a Holocaust? Uh, against one evil nation, but but against an entire nation, men, women, children, uh, uh, horses, sheep, chickens, <laughs> etc. Um, it's going to come up when you teach Sefer Shmuel. It's going to come up when you teach Sefer Shmuel. It's going to come up if you're teaching Masechet Megillah. It's an issue which a teacher... It's one of those issues I say it's, it's a back pocket issue. When, when you're teaching whatever you're teaching and you're curricularizing the material, you know that over the course of the year these 10 or 12 or 15 topics that sometimes, sometimes the students think, ah, we managed to get them off track, but really they managed just to lead you into the discussion which you, 
assiduously prepared for, were ready for, and were conscious and, and not just hoping, but steering the conversation in that way. Um, these these planned these planned sides. So a mullik, it's, it's a back pocket issue. You need to have an answer to this question because if you're teaching any of these topics, it, if your students don't ask the question, it's problematic. If your students aren't sensitive to the the ethical question that's right there, it's not even uh, underneath the text, it's right there on the surface of the text, then, then there's something wrong. This is the kind of thing that people should be asking. But we need to have answers, answers for. So I think that Natty's piece is very good. It happens completely by coincidence on the ATID website, atid.org, we have you know, various resources and every few uh, months or weeks we put up, uh, we put up uh, you know, new, new resources for teachers. So one of the things that's going up now is, uh, it'll, it should be up in a couple of weeks, is um, an annotated bibliography of everything that's been said and written on this topic, on the, on the ethical, moral topic of, of a malik. And hopefully that would be an interesting uh, supplement you know, and, and answer some, you know, what we, we see as a little bit of a lack. Um, so that's, uh, I would point that out. Also, it's interesting it, in, the, in the introduction, at the very end of the introduction, or in the last, there's one footnote to the introduction, so I'm second PS, uh, there's a glossary and a bibliography to the book. The glossary and the bibliography of traditional Jewish sources referred to in the book can be found online at www.benyehudapress b-e-n-y-e-h-u-d-a p-r-e-s-s all one word backslash y-c-t backslash biblio b-i-b-l-i-o so it could be and I see this a lot even in academic works I was reading something I think from the University of Chicago Press and yeah these books are very expensive and they're really big it's a 500 plus page book and many of the footnotes were relegated to a website. I mean, there were certain bare-bones footnotes, and for other footnotes, or for other, you know, endnotes and paraphernalia, apparatus, you, you go to the website and you can download and get it, which I guess the publisher is interested in saving costs, and they realize that many people read books, they don't care about that stuff in the back anyway. I mean, the three of us do. Most of our gentle listeners do, but not everybody that buys a book is interested in the, in the, in the footnotes. Um, and uh, so I see that this is a trend that publishers are beginning to do it online and Kol Dichfin can go and download it and read it on, on their own. So there's room, all the things that we're saying we would have liked to have seen in the book. It could also be done in the supplementary way since the book is, Daniel's correct, the book is for general readership and we're interested, we're talking about things that we as teachers would like to see. That might be a suggestion for future volumes to, to add supplementary material on, online. Um, so I, I felt that one of the richest essays from a literary perspective, or who was trying to do something very rich literarily, was Rabbi Avi Weiss's article on Avi Gail. It's quite long, I think, even. Maybe I'm not right about that. I, I felt that it was one of the longer um, essays, and 
you know what, yeah, maybe it's about, it's about 26 yeah. pages. Okay. Um, it's a little longer than some of those. And, um, and, and he, what, what he does, for better or for worse, I think, is a tremendous amount of literary material within this essay, so that even before he gets to the heart of the matter, he throws out, you know, four or five different parallels that he doesn't even develop, right? You know, he says, um, Naval and David, that reminds us of Esther and Haman. He doesn't develop it, and that, I think, perhaps is a drawback when you want to make the, the, the literary parallel so much that you're willing to, wake, to make it without developing it. But it's also, I think, a nice thing for an educator, for a teacher to have a little bit of material that, you know, sort of sparks their thoughts. Sometimes I even do that when I'm teaching. I'll say, here's an interesting parallel. I'm not going to develop it here, but think about it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that point I did feel uh, happened at several different places in, uh, in Rabbi Weiss's essay. That's um, also not something that you would normally do in a written presentation, right. but because it's yeah. a lecture, right. you go ah, it around. Correct, right. Um, and he made some, I think, uh, you know, even before he actually got to the point, he, he talked about, um, you know, David was really the king after, uh, when, when, uh, when Nafal refused him because he cut the coat, and once you cut the coat, that already means that Shaul is no longer the king, and, you know, he, he um, you know, sort of refers very, very briefly to the word mitpartzim, rabu avadim hamitpartzim ish mitneadonav, and he says, oh, mitpartzim, it's from Peretz which is, you know, reminds the reader that David um, uh, comes from Paris and, and therefore it's really an allusion to the fact that Naval knows that David is, is really the, the right king. Uh, so he has all these sort of tantalizing moments even before he really gets to the central idea, which I really think is a, is, is a very good idea in its core. He talks about David struggling with peace and war. And he says that that can be seen very nicely in the different comparisons between David and Esav, on the one hand, and David and Yaakov, on the other hand. Um, I like this very much because I always thought about these parallels between David and Esav, you know, the Adboni and the Arbam Meot Ish, and uh, the sense that David is struggling with this violent, mm. you know, passionate side. Um, the weak point here is that there really isn't a lot of comparison between David and Yaakov. <laughs> Not in this story. I mean, at least I, I, I felt that, that, that some of his um, uh, attempts here to show that David and Yaakov are similar in this story fell short. I mean, the word noshe isn't related to the word kishma. <laughs> You know, as much as, as, as I, I thought the idea, I think the idea is true. Although I think he admits that a lot of these things are, are uh, they're, they're, they're puns, they're word, they're word plays, they're not, they're not uh, etymological. Well, the question is, 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 is a word play legitimate if it's not intended, if it just sort of strikes us or if it sounds... Uh, it sounds the same. Is that again? I mean, this is a question. I, I think he's right that David is struggling. As, as Parshanut, certainly he didn't invent this. In other words, he didn't take this. Uh, he didn't make it about thin air. These kinds of. I mean, even Chazal uh, uh, would would make uh, you know uh, things that weren't etymologically connected, but those words that play that bounce off of each other, that ring off of each other. Uh, uh, to, uh, I mean, I, I don't know exactly which, where, what you're referring to. Yeah, which, I'm trying which, to take uh, <laughs> I think Chazal, I don't know, I mean, my feeling is, is, that, is that we tend to be methodologically more rigorous than, um, than uh, you know, again, it is legitimate if you have a core to then build a theory uh, around it. And again, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that I don't, I happen to agree with his general idea. I think mm-hmm. it is true. I think David is struggling with 
am I Asaf in this story, or you know, am I really Yaakov? Um, I'm not necessarily sure if the comparisons between Yaakov and David in the story are warranted. Um, even if I think that, that it's, it's sufficient to say that all of these struggles or all of these similarities between uh, David and Esav are enough to make that theory work. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I liked very, very much in this essay was, uh, I think it's at the very end when he talks about Doeg uh, Ha'adomi and Adriel Hamacholati, and he said basically these are, I don't know if you use the word, but basically these are alter egos of David. And Doeg represents David's violent side, and Adriel represents his sexual side, or you know, some of the things that he's struggling with to be, to rise above some of these basic human passions. Um, and I thought that was very nice. I never thought of that, and, and, and I never actually, I, I never heard anyone say it. I thought that was actually a very uh, interesting point. Certainly Doeg Adomi, um, becomes a very pivotal figure in the Midrash on Sefer Shmuel, much, much, much um, more so than he appears in the text itself. The Midrashim are constantly identifying anonymous characters with Doeg HaDomi, and this I thought was a very nice, um, a very nice explanation as to why if, if Doeg HaDomi is sort of disproportionately represented in the Midrash, maybe it's because he functions as some sort of counterpart to David, and then there's that Adomi or Admoni, ace of like affective. I, I thought that was really very, uh, very clever, very, very interesting, very true. Maybe. I just wanted to point out uh, uh, one issue that uh, Jack Beeler raised at the end of his essay. Which, uh, I was also going to mention that. Uh, I thought interesting. Uh, again, this is a, in some, at some level only because it was a lecture that you could get away with throwing something like this out at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but to give this kind of overarching view as to how he thinks you should read the Tanakh and uh, the way he says it, um, if instead of focusing on the details, we focus on the motivations, on the why, we can have a living discussion because there is no fixed answer to that question. There are many answers. When a student says to me the answer is, I say no, an answer is. So he emphasizes that openness to uh, interpretation, which is an important reflection on his method and in many ways on, I think, a method that runs throughout this book. Um, and he sort of throws that aside in which you could see being very appropriate in the context of a lecture that I wouldn't write if I was right. writing an essay. See, now, I, I agree with you that most people wouldn't. I think that it, it happens that in this case, as we mentioned, this essay really is probably just a, a, an edited transcript instead of his reworking, but I think that Jack Beeler, Rabbi Jack Beeler, who, uh, who was the rabbi of the Kempton Synagogue in, uh, in Silver Spring, and for many years, well, I think he may still be uh, on the faculty of, of, the, uh, uh, of the Berman Yeshiva High School in Silver Spring, and many years before that he taught in, uh, in Ramaz, although he's been in Silver Spring already for, for many years. Um, he, he's written, he's probably done more to establish the field of philosophy of education within the modern effects world. He's written more, dozens and dozens of essays. Um, I was actually recently involved in, in a project with him at the Mendel Institute um, where they collected up a bunch of these essays and made them available online. Um, and this, he's just an incredible uh, resource for thinking on this. When, when people, even master pedagogues, aren't thinking and writing about these meta 
educational issues, he does so. He very well might have put this in. I, but I admit that most people, most people wouldn't. Interestingly, he frames the whole. I, this is why I like his essay so much. But maybe that's my own, you know, my own interests and 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 predilections. He frames the whole essay at the beginning and then with this summary at the end about looking at the the larger educational question. Mm-hmm. He says at the beginning. He, he quotes Rabbi Lichtenstein, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein who once said that vast parts of Tanakh are closed to rabbis, although I assume he meant to anyone, not just to rabbis, are closed to anyone, even to rabbis, rabbis, who haven't studied psychology, who haven't studied psychology. And then he gives this kind of, um, you know, analysis of what happens to, what happens to David after the, after the story at the beginning of Shmuel Bet, when the, when the Aron HaKodesh, the Ark is being moved from, uh, from Beit Shemesh to, to Yerushalayim, and Uzzah uh, probably accidentally touches it, maybe even to protect it from falling off the wagon that was uh, that was transporting it, and, and is killed because you're not allowed to touch the the, the Aram. And the whole thing is a very mysterious chapter, and and and, and uh, so the analysis of what's going on to try to get deeper to the surface. He says, interestingly, at the at the end, he says that the study of Tanakh is a conversation. Or, you know, what he's really saying is it ought to be a conversation, pedagogically speaking. The, you know, it's really what he's saying is you're a teacher of Tanakh, teaching Tanakh, and learning Tanakh with your students. Is It's meant to be a conversation. Those who base ideas on the text may participate. And the understanding added to the conversation by these new ideas is legitimate. That's how he ends the, ends the piece, which I, I admit most people wouldn't do that. And I, I, I think that it's significant that he does, but I'm not surprised an article by Jack Beeler that he did. Like if you would have thrown all the essays up in the air and asked me to guess, okay, who wrote this one? I would have known it was Jack Beeler just because of the way he frames the whole, the whole, the whole, his whole analysis of that peric um, within these larger educational questions. Yeah, I was also struck by his, uh, his it, not just the beginning and the end, but his general approach towards um, education and teaching Tanakh. In the middle, he talks about um, uh, the notion of causality, the idea that misfortune should be seen as a punishment for wrongdoing. And he says, this is very problematic, particularly when discussing a text in an educational setting. He says, particularly if you're teaching children, one must temper that idea of causality with plenty of other possible sure. interpretations. Yeah, and that was very... I, I was struck by his educational... Um, yeah. Concern and his caution in throughout. I felt that um, right. that was very uh, was very noteworthy. Right. Any other specific points or, or noteworthy uh, noteworthy passages? I'm not going to answer your question, but I'm going to say something. <laughs> <else>. <laughs> uh, <coughs> one of the sort of the I guess the the tensions that I would have in giving this kind of presentation when you're asked to give a a one-time uh, presentation on a piece of a sefer, but you have a sense of the whole sefer, then the question is to what degree you are uh, indicating or presenting your sort of theory of the book, and not necessarily everyone has a theory of the book. Certainly, uh, Rabbi David Silber does, and it comes across in all of his essays, I think, when he talks about sort of the theme mm-hmm. of the book and the role of the monarchy, what's somewhat frustrating as a reader of those three essays that you only is get that one he step. doesn't really address that big issue, which clearly is behind his thinking about the book in general and comes up peripherally right. in those three presentations, right. is never addressed 
directly. So I know that he's got something to say about what is this book about and how does this book hold together, but he gave three particular uh-huh. presentations and doesn't ever get to that point. Right. So, you know, that's just, I think it's, again, the nature of this presentation and also the fact that he clearly has that. That's something that when I presented it, uh, at the GMAU and I struggle with that same issue. Well, if I have something to say about the whole book, but I want to present a particular topic, and you have only only, 50 minutes, and I only have one, you know, one, one shot to do it, how much does that get across? And and you can run into that problem also that you're you're hinting at things, but if it's not clear what you're hinting at, then right, it's uh, right. Although because he does give the first essay and the last essay, and he and right. one one nice thing that we didn't mention about the book is that. They do have the essays in chronological order. Meaning which following, is, the, following yeah. the Prakim in the Sefer, right. Which so is very nice. Not chronological, right, I, right, I guess yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but <laughs> in this book. In Sefer Shemal, yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, but Rabbi Silver does the first essay and the last, meaning yeah. he does the first part of the book and he does the last two Prakim. And so I, I, I do think that his theory of the book comes through, you know, when he talks about the correlation between man's kingdom and God's kingdom and that that's the only way that it can work and, and I, I think what he said about Chana was so fantastic that Chana wanted change that that was who she was uh, you know more than more than anything else and, um, and to, I think that his larger theory does come through because he's the beginning of the end he talks about the chiastic structure at the end and, um, and uh, the, the bottom line is that the king works for Hashem and for Am Yisrael. And then he does actually relate back to his original essay, or at least to Hanaz's um, uh, tefillah in his last essay. Uh-huh. Right, he does pull it together. Yeah. yeah, which I thought was nice to have Rabbi Silver at the beginning and at the end create a certain coherence and a certain, some sort of framework for a larger theory of the book. Mm-hmm. Again, he, he asked the question in that first essay, um, is monarchy good or bad development for the Jewish people? And then he says, what is, what's God's opinions on, on the subject? And presumably what he means, which he doesn't really explain here, is that based on my interpretation of the prophetic statement of the book of Shmuel, I will have a, an answer of God's, you know, God's opinion. Uh, but because it's also clear that his approach is going to be somewhat uh, complex, that he doesn't ever address, well, this is what I think is the statement of the book, if you can make such a statement. That's really uh, what I would say. At some point you could say, I think the statement of Sefer Shmuel is this, and these are how some of the particulars feed into it. But I, I agree that he's, the placement of his essays uh, does, it does give a little bit of more coherence to the, to the book as well. Significant that you have a collection of 13 essays, not one is written by a woman? Well, I probably not. <laughs> no, I mean, I think in general... But it's not a book put out by the Mirror Yeshiva. <laughs> no, but if you look at the Yimeyun in general, both here in Herzog and in, um, and in New okay, York... There are many more men. Disproportionate. And I think that... It, it, I really do believe that he probably... That probably all of the essays from that year on Shmuel it were, put, were put in there and it happened yes. I think that there is a disproportionate amount of men teaching at both these um, Yimeyun, which I think may just be, a, you know, just accounted for by the fact that uh, there are more men teaching. But there's a number of essays that address the role of women <laughs> in the... Yes, correct. You can't yeah. ignore that if you're teaching safer teaching Sefer Shmuel. Let's just, let, let's just go meta for a second before we, before we end. So, look, this is a very, very fine volume, and we, I think we're all three saying, go out and 
get the book. I, I, if, you, if it's not in your local bookstore, I'm sure that you can get it uh, through the website of benyehudapress.com, um, uh, again, which is based in, based in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're learning, say, for Shmuel Bakias or Be'in on your own, this is going to really fill in a lot of stuff that you would miss by going to uh, a shiur in Sefer Shmuel. If you're a teacher of Sefer Shmuel, particularly if it's your first time around and you're doing that hard work of keeping your head above water and it's not something that you have in your back pocket yet, and going through this book is going to give you a lot of really good ideas and is going to frame a lot of issues which will be helpful. You, you, you couldn't, you shouldn't, you wouldn't want to regurgitate any of these chapters word for word in your, in your high school classroom or, or in, in a midrashah that you're teaching or, or certainly not in elementary school, but it's go, it would inform the way you think about it and that of course is going to then impact on, on your teaching and your interaction with your students and well frankly all of those issues that Jack Bueller raises in his paper about what's the whole role of learning Tanakh in the first place in this case the way it would play out in, in Sefer Shmuel so that would be useful um, what, what would we want as teachers what would we want as teachers um, to see by way of future resources let's say we could wave our magic wand and produce you know, a resource for a teacher, let's say, since we're talking about it tonight, of Sefer Shmuel or of any particular book in Tanakh. I mean, there's a lot of material out there and it's really very uneven. Um, and you're a young teacher and maybe it's your first time you have to teach, you have to teach uh, Sefer Shmuel. Maybe you're not a young teacher and you've just never happened to have gotten around to teaching Sefer Shmuel. You've been busy doing lots of other things in and for the first time you have to, you know, here it is, it's, it's uh, the beginning of the summer and you're sitting down to plan for next year. What would we like to see as a resource for teachers? Well, it's a, a question that hits home for me because my first year teaching, I taught a seventh grade class in Sefer Shmuel and I was given, let's say, little guidance as to what I was supposed to be doing uh, in that class. And over my years teaching, I, I thought about and I helped develop some materials as to what would you actually want. Something that's very basic is a list of the prakim and uh, some sort of evaluation as to which ones are key to developing a theme for the book. So that that's what goes back to what I was talking about before, a statement of the book. Mm -hmm. What is this book about? Um, if you want to throw out some educational terminology, what's sort of the essential understanding? of the book, it, can you come up with, enduring understanding, sorry, uh, can you come up with such a statement and can you frame the book and then choose the prakim that are relevant because you can't finish Sefer Shmuel in seventh grade in one year. Yeah. And yet that in many schools is an expectation. Uh, so it's a question of how to triage the... Right, how do you, how do you organ what this book doesn't do because it's a collection of particular presentations to give you a sense of uh, how you make those decisions. Well, what are the parts of Sefer Shmuel that need to be taught? And what are the parts that are, would be great to get to, but maybe I'm not going to? Because I don't want to just start at the beginning and get to wherever I get to. Right. Uh, that certainly is an important document that you can 
you could produce. If that could be done internal, that's not a big deal, but that's where you start when you think about teaching a class that's ever small. Well, assuming we have all the time in the world and, uh, and we can teach, uh, say, for Shmuel comprehensively, I think if we're looking for a literary theological uh, guidebook, I think we need three different things. I think we need a book of essays giving the larger themes, you know, like a Rabbi Silver who talks about kingship or, you know, um, uh, those kinds of essays that really hit on even, you know, um, uh, Josh Berman's article, which we haven't mentioned yet, on, uh, on, on the role of the Beit HaMikdash and why David can build it and why Shlomo does build it. You know, it's, uh, one book on essays dealing with the major issues. I think the second thing I would look for is a close reading, which, by the way, has been done by Jan Fokelman in 1350 wonderful pages divided into four different volumes um, and you know, it's a close reading. He does, takes every single pasuk and shows all of the interconnections like we saw in Rabbi Weiss's article or we saw in Shmuel Hertzfeld's article which we also haven't mentioned. But, you know, all these cross-references and showing how all the different words have, uh, yeah, have significance and, and, and what, what actually is their meaning within the larger uh, framework not just of Sefer Shmuel but also in Tanakh. And the third thing I'd be looking for is the theological. We have the literary, uh, we have the thematic, and the third thing I'd be looking for is the theological, where I would really want to see on each uh, parak the midrashim, the the parshanim, both medieval and and modern, um, the gemaras that deal with the larger issues that Chazal were concerned with. And sometimes when you take that and you put it next to the literary close readings, what emerges is that Chazal were really dealing with those very same questions, even if they often don't approach it in the same way that, you know, Jan Fokelman out there in the Netherlands approached it. They're oftentimes looking at the same um, right. at the same issues. Right. And I think if we would have those three, um, those, that, that, those right. three different um, uh, yeah. Robert also makes this yeah. point in um, in uh, the art of biblical uh, narrative. Uh, he makes the point at the beginning that a lot of what we're talking about with literary analysis, Chazal were already doing. Yeah. Right? Chazal were doing this in. Uh, I think the example he gives is uh, looking at uh, at Yehuda and Tamar. Um, and uh, yeah, it's true. And you know, kind of the very conservative, the lowercase c, the conservative. Uh, um, at best distaste with this kind of uh, approach to literary theological parshanut. Um, it shows that it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's already there in Chazal. It's already there in... Uh, but even when Chazal weren't doing it directly, even when they weren't noticing hakerna, hakerna, sometimes their ideas, even sometimes when they seem far-fetched, they're often penetrating to the very theological ideas that you would emerge with from a close literary yeah. reading. And that's yeah. really what's wonderful when you put the two next to each other. Yeah. Okay, well, this has been very interesting. Thank you to our listeners, those of you that are still holding on with us. And we hope to bring you another installment. On occasions, we'll be having a little round table like this with educators talking a book about a book that, we, uh, that we've all read. If possible, we'll let you know. We'll give you a heads up let you know what next month's selection is going to be. You might want to read it in advance of the, of the discussion. Sometimes we'll be sitting with, uh, with authors themselves talking about what it is that they were undertaking. In the meantime, uh, Yeshiva Chovavei Torah's Tanakh companion to the book of Shmuel is highly recommended by, uh, by, the, by the three of us. I think I can speak for, for my, my friends here, Yael Ziegler and, uh, and uh, Danielle Wolf. 
and thank you, thank you both very much, and we hope to bring you another installment in about a month.